2 WCB Newsline Unleashed. I just wanted to talk to you about probably several different things, but pretty much whatever you would like to talk about, um, feel free to tell as many stories or talk about as many topics as you wish in whatever detail. So I will tell you that the theme of our next newsline is it's art, and it's basically a quote by Pablo Picasso. Art washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life. You know, you're, you're welcome okay. to talk about anything that that means to you or how it incorporates anything in your life you want to talk about. So I'm just going to toss it over to you, and um, if I have questions, I will ask them along the way. Art is interesting uh, in the sense, well, for me, in the sense that it is sometimes extremely personal, so it's art or expression, but it doesn't matter who the audience is because it's being done for the statement, not for the, for the adulation. So for some artists, it's their only way of actually interfacing with a very confusing universe, a very confusing society. It sometimes is the only thing that makes sense in terms of their language. And then oftentimes art uh, seems to be the uh, representation of where people are, where they want to go, or where they've been. So it pulls on the personal experiences of each person who either uses, hears it, listens to it, experiences, uh, uh, engages in it. It actually uh, on all of those things that make up who they are. And so it often brings them, uh, art can bring people into aspiration or it can bring them into moments of, of sad reflection or contemplation. So art, it's sort of the uncontrolled, non-bottleneck, uh, not structured particularly. Uh, it's this the expression of humanity without humanity saying what the rules are. So it sort of allows a person to really express themselves fully in authentic ways without being restricted because you don't do that or that's not done or we do it this way. Exactly. So, <laughs> and so I, I, I just think of art as it either leads, follow, it doesn't follow, it always it can lead you to personal and emotional places, or it can lead entire societies towards aspiration, goals, rebellion, or reflection. What I discovered, and of course, art is art. Is art. And so, I mean, art can be anything, almost anything. Yeah. You think about it. It's a, uh, there's no definition of what art is, per se. And, but in the classic art form, since I have been a blind person, I have just noticed that there are way too many people in the community and although, and those that actually enable community to uh, assume that art is not for them. <laughs> you know, maybe music, music is a good form. So, you know, uh, if I, uh, first thing, uh, it's a piano and if someone's here, uh, the first person who comes up is Stevie Wonder or somebody. So the the blind person and the piano sort of go together as that's the art form for the blind folks. Or singing. 
vocalizing. That's the, the uh, art form. So you've got society telling you what the art form is for you as a blind person. I have spent a lot of time pushing up against that and saying that art is still something that society needs to understand universal access to. That if you're going to paint, make the painting somehow accessible to all people who view it, regardless of how they view it. So uh, if I'm looking at a piece of artwork and I've got someone who's ex describing it to me, all I'm doing is getting their impression of the art, so I don't have purity. I have no authentic experience of that piece of work. I have somebody else's impressions. And being stubborn, I'm never satisfied with somebody else's impressions. So I would request that the artist give me their description of the artwork, or that the audio version of the artist describing what they've done it doesn't necessarily mean tell me what you're what I should feel from this, but tell me what you've done with this. As the artist, take me into your painting. Start telling me the colors and how they feel to you. What kind of shapes you're creating. What kinds of, of images are there without telling me what they're supposed to be. Just go through and just, you describe it, artist person, because you're the one that intimately has taken this medium and used it for your language, your description, and your message. So, Tell me what you've done, and I will probably hear your, hear your message. Or I'll hear my message, but I will be uh, guided by what you present. Uh, another way to say that is when uh, uh, earlier when I was talking about doing soundscapes. Mm -hmm. so, the idea is, is I'm not necessarily trying to create a melody line that someone's going to walk out whistling or going, wow, that was really a pretty melody line. So are there words to that? Or if someone comes up and says, do you know the theme song to um, Star Star Wars <laughs> or something? <laughs> and they sort of go, gosh, you know, I wish I did, but I don't. And stuff. So I'm so sorry, I can't do that for you. Can you play Happy Birthday? No, I can't. Is that, so it's Thank like, goodness. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so for years and years and years, I, and the piano I'm sitting at right now is the first piano I've lived with. I consider this my first true engagement with the instrument, even though from a child I've always wanted to play the piano. And so since as a child and going through adulthood, I was never in a position to take piano lessons or live with the piano or whatever. It's always what it was when I would find a piano and just start hitting keys. So I was trying to find the, my message in the keyboard. I was trying to find how to express my thoughts in the keyboard. I was trying to uh, find a pathway to uh, creating a, an audio or musical narrative that for, when I first started was for me. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, I am deeply sad. So I'm going to go to a minor key. It's sort of meditative. 
medicate insulin music, sort of get it out, not keep it bottled up, let it come out. So I wasn't playing it for an audience to listen to. I was playing it for an expression. So it was an outward message. It wasn't an inward one. I, w I did that for, oh gosh, probably at least eight years or so when I finally started living with the piano and just playing with it and experimenting and listening for my sound, whatever my sound is. And so then when uh, people first started listening, where I got brave enough to, to let someone actually hear it, because my fear, my biggest fear with the, the music piece in terms of keeping it as personal experience was running into people, because everybody takes piano, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and everybody uh, sang a choir, took a, put in a band instrument. Um, so my fear was that, that they were going to say, well, those don't, those notes don't go together. You're, that doesn't work. Or you, uh, you're not keeping the right beat. Or you're, uh, uh, I don't understand why you went from that chord to that chord and stuff because it's not done. It just doesn't seem right. So, so my fear was the critique. From educated a, critique. <laughs> <laughs> kind, of, kind of from the educated perspective, not the, the feeling perspective. Right, from the technique, right? Yeah. So, so that was going to basically look at the music as, as uh, one of the, since it's a well-developed art form, to sort of basically dissect it from the technique of performance or mm -hmm. the technique of score writing or the technique of mm -hmm. musical something, right? And so, and so my reluctance was I didn't want, I didn't want to hear that mm -hmm. <laughs> particularly. Not that I don't and still don't want to grow in terms of a, a, as a musical artist. I am, I personally come from the right brain place where it flows like a stream. It doesn't come in little chunks and puzzle pieces and you put it together. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of the left brain approach. It says, give me three measures and three bars and then that's the thing. I basically go, where does it start and where does it end? <laughs> right. That's how I, I sort of approach it. So, so when I first let, started letting people listen to me play, I was extremely nervous for one thing. And so I had to put myself in a place where I would almost pre-log the experience saying, don't expect this, uh, that for you to listen, for this to make any sense to you at all, you have to sort of go to an empty place in your head. So let yourself meditate, so to speak. Uh, I have to even ask people when I first started to sit down and close their eyes mm -hmm. and just, just close your eyes and be with them. And then I sort of started discovering as people would experience it and share with me that what I was doing was really just giving them permission to create a narrative. So I would take them into like the soft, gentle places where they could think of soft and gentle things in their lives. And I would take them into angry places. So they 
could go into those angry places in their life yeah. and stuff, add their, their narrative and stuff. So that's sort of how I came up with the whole idea that I'm really playing a musical score to your thoughts, and I'm going to take 15 minutes of your life and give you a background, uh, a score to your thoughts. Kind of how I approach the whole piece here is like a painting. There may be similarities in what I play, but there's I never play the same song twice or the same musical piece twice. It has all kinds of elements from former pieces or this, that, and the other thing. So I'm using just things that I've done. Every 10 or 15 minutes is different. It's unique to itself, and it will never occur again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, you know, just as, you know, your reference to it being like a painting, you know, a painter could try to paint a similar painting, but it's never going to be exactly the same. The creative process is creating one of a kind. The production process is creating multiples of the same thing at a time. Mm-hmm. Right? But and there's so, always the original, which there's only one well, original. Yeah, or, you know, like, say, like, Chihuly. Uh-huh. I mean, he's, he's extremely creative, except, except, but as soon as you, uh, and there's a, there's a certain uh, prestige in someone be able to look at a piece of work and say, that's a Chihuly, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's really an achievement as an artist for a stranger to look at a piece of glass work and name the artist. But that for them to do that, there actually has to be a signature about it, right? Right. And so, so I'd be cool if I felt with having a signature to the whatever I create on a keyboard. I'm awesomely cool with that. And so, <laughs> but what I don't, what I'm not interested in is someone sort of saying, play that song you played three days ago. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it would be like, I can go into the same zone, but it will not be the same song. It will not be the same piece of music. Right. Because today, I'm in a different place, and so are you. Yep. And so, um, it takes you to the zone, but it's going to be a different piece of music. That's why I've taken to doing lots of, uh, I've got on my channel, I have 16 tracks of recording um, on floppy disk, so it's old school. It's been around for a while, this piano. And... Uh, so I can actually improv to myself, which has taken me years. <laughs> when I first started doing this thing, I would uh, actually use at least 14 tracks. And so I was just putting way too much music on a, on, on a single recording. And at first I was sort of playing with the idea of having a barrage of sound so that people could not go into the track of trying to listen to how they listened to music before because they were actually being barraged. So I would find a little spot where it's very, very small little sound. And then all of a sudden, it's like orchestra pieces, <laughs> drums. It's just like, whoa, where did all that come from? Uh, so that it actually started challenging how you listen, how people had to listen to it. I remember a long time ago watching the movie Amadeus, and there was a line in there from uh, Mozart's nemesis, from the king that he was creating music for, the aristocrat, and stuff. And so he would create a piece of music, and the and the aristocrat came back with, uh, "Yes, I 
very nice piece of music, but you have to, to take some of the notes out. There are too many notes. The, the ear can hear so many notes, and you've got too many, so you have to remove some notes. And for some reason, that line stuck with me for a while, and so I kind of went to the place where there were too many notes. So that, and I was challenging myself kind of to see if I couldn't make it actually hold too many notes. <laughs> Yeah. So there were times when I was actually using that technique to just create complete chaos to the point that I would, would think the listener would almost start stressing because there were too many notes. And for some reason, <laughs> I thought that would be an interesting thing to experiment with, which I did for a while. And now, currently, I switched from that. And part of that, I think, comes. I was I'm a psychology person. That was my major was psychology. And I remember working with in a master's program on groupthink, where we would take video and we would have like eight or nine videos going at the same time that people had to absorb. Oh wow! And stuff. And it was trying to find that place where either they got desensitized to everything and they all just started picking up just the simple parts or they were so over barraged they couldn't follow any of it. So I think in part, I wasn't doing this on purpose, but I think in part I was taking that chaos to the place where people either found the one piece that actually spoke to them, the one instrument, the one line, the one sequence, or there were too many notes and it just had to break off. That, and that was just a technique that I actually still use, but I now use it sparingly. But, uh, but I want to create chaos and then bring a restful thing back, a little peaceful point back, or out of the chaos rises the flower that blooms kind right. of thing. So, then, so currently then I'm, I'm really trying to play with space, realizing that uh, in, the, in, the, in the space, so doing something like uh, if I were doing a... Actually, talking about the space, you know, it's, I think we've talked a little bit before, but like the space is where we have to breathe, you know, whether it's in music or, you know, in, in those moments between the crazy chaos of our life, we have to have that space, or I think that it would yeah. be impossible to exist. Oh, absolutely. From me trying to create music that speaks to other people, because I'm over just for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm actually trying to use it now as a 
communication device for a small niche audience, really, mm-hmm. and not for a career and not for commercial gain. What I've discovered is that less is more piece, where uh, in in the openness and stuff is where you've got the listener hanging on it. It becomes much more anticipatory. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like with an actor, because I also do stage stuff, but so when I'm on stage, if I want to really engage the audience, I start loud and I keep getting softer and softer. So the audience has to start leaning forward. And you're pulling them in. And that's when you've got them in the highest listening mode, so to speak, and that's where whatever you're doing has the message. Mm-hmm. Because now they had to lean in so far just to hear that all of a sudden when they hear it, it's up, it's become magnified because they were intently listening as opposed to easily listening, sit back in their chair because it's been projected throughout the theater. And so you don't have to work to hear. So what have you what have you done with theater? Like where do you perform? Who do you work with? What have you done that way? Because in high school I did theater all the way through high school. Then I went into music, so I did choruses. So I've done lots of chorus work on stage and performed with lots of well known folks and stuff from Maya Angelo to tons of artists and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I left the choir because it was just becoming more than I wanted to do. And I had done it 25 years, so I was done. So I actually started taking um, uh, improv classes with uh, improv productions or production company. And so I started taking classes. And then uh, once I went to a certain level of classwork, they have a theater that's been around there forever down at Pike Street Market, but it's a small, intimate theater. And so that's where I was starting before the pandemic to actually do stage work again and just trying to find my um, my spot and stuff. And what I discovered was, I mean, because improv is, is fascinating. And, I, and again, it suits me kind of normally because that's what I do on the channel, right? Mm-hmm. I keep improv into my, so I'm my improv group. But there, you have to actually be generous to others. You actually, in improv, the, the secret is let go of yourself, let go of your story, and stay in a moment so that you're responding to what others are saying. And you always add to what they say. You never detract with what they say, right? So if someone says the sky is purple, you say yes, and it really has awesome orange stars, right? You, you give to keep giving. You don't mm-hmm. say no, Billy, it's not purple, it's blue. That shuts it down. <laughs> so some good life lessons in it. So I started to discover, because everyone sort of brings their own sense of improv, talent, wit, uh, process, whatever. So I discovered that were my, because part of my challenge was improv also can be very physical. Yes. And so when I was taking uh, uh, improv classes, uh, with them, they didn't know what to do with me because they had never worked with a blind student before. And so I had to basically keep uh, sharing with them how to keep me part of it without making me a spotlight for the wrong reason. 
but it is challenging. And I'm going to really say it out loud. It is challenging. And so, so I had to find a place on stage that made sense for me to use character, but also made sense that I didn't walk off the side of the stage or talk to the back of the wall. Mm-hmm. Right. Someone guiding me around the stage, which would be a little bit awesome, awesomely awful. Um, <laughs> so what I discovered was that I was very good at being the disruptor. Mm-hmm. So what I found what I could do really well was hang back, keep track of what's going on in front of me, and then as soon as I got bored with the story, I would go in and change it. <laughs> I, would just, I would just step out and absolutely do an 180-degree turn on the story, and then everybody then at that point had to now respond another direction. Wow. So but I just, that's what I discovered was actually my uh, best or felt the most comfortable in doing because I could pop in at my own confidence level. I would be tracking the story so I could find some clever way to bend the story another direction because I'm really listening intently. Yes. And bend the direction, go in, get it, get it started, get other people moving, it, and then pop back out and wait for the next turn. So that's kind of what I started. That's pretty creative of you, actually. I I love that you thought about that, you know, and found, like, you twisted it to to make it work for you and not them. Yeah, and that that whole thing of of me trying to, because, again, a lot of it can be physical comedy, right? So people doing physical things. And, again, it's not always comedy. There can be serious serious pieces, too, uh, depending on the game. There's this one game that's called, uh, oh, Hitchhiker. And so, so the way it, it works is that there's two chairs toward the front of this of the stage with a gap of about one chair or so between, so that there's a chair behind, so that when an audience is looking at it, you can see two chairs in front and the one chair between the chair, two chairs in back, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're standing in line, so that all the the uh, ensemble group is standing in line, and so it starts with basically one person sitting to on, in the chair on the left, mm-hmm. and they're the dr- and then a person sitting on the right in front is a passenger. And then the back chair is empty. And so then what happens is when you start it, you're driving along and then a hitchhiker appears and they take the third seat. So you have to do this interaction and the trick is, is whatever the hit, however the hitchhiker enters the scene, you have to adjust to that scene, right? So you might be driving along uh, as uh, two friends looking at the forest or something, and a hitchhiker pops in, and they are an old lady looking for grandma or looking for the wolf who just uh, ran off with her basket. And all of a sudden, you had to now react, become that story. I thought I saw a wolf over there. Wasn't it a basket we saw? And our, ooh, you know. Yeah. Or become an old lady or an old person or something. But you had to become and just the story. And so then there's a break. The uh, uh, moderator serves sort of breaks. And so then the hitchhiker moves up to the passenger seat. The driver moves off stage. The passenger moves over to the driver's seat. And then a new hitchhiker is ready to come on stage at the moment and as it resumes. And so, so it keeps moving really fast. And you have to keep changing Theme. I mean, you have to keep changing whatever the hitchhiker comes in with. You have to become that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, <laughs> it's adult play. Is what it is. It's, it's like you have to get into your child and play. Yes. And one of the first things, 
that they uh, kept teaching and preaching was, if you want to do this, you have to stop thinking. You can't think. If you think, you're mess- you're not gonna, it's not going to work. Because mm-hmm. you're going to try to set the score. You're going to try to set the theme. You're going to try to outthink the theme. You can't think. You have to absolutely be so into it that you're not thinking. Your ears are what's working, not your mind. Which is kind of perfect for a blind guy, eh? It is. <laughs> and also, you know, and I know I'm going to get this quote a little bit wrong, but, but one that I was uh, reading when I was thinking about this whole art concept was from Mark Chagall. And it had to do with when I think with my heart, uh, nearly everything works. And when I think with my head, almost nothing does. So it's, it's kind of that concept again of, you know, use your heart and your instincts and, you know, don't think too hard about it. I just was listening today. I don't know if you, uh, on NPR today was this guy who was basically talking about left brain, right brain, brain mm-hmm. right? And it was contradicting the whole concept that the right brain is um, the creative brain and the left brain is the uh, computer brain, sort mm-hmm. of thing, which is truck bank or something. And he was basically trying to say that there is, you have two brain lobes and they're both operating at the same time in different places. So that the right brain is the big picture thinker and then the left brain is the functional task uh thinker. So a lot of the examples to use, because again, almost every animal has a two-lobe brain. And so so he's talking about a bird who might be coming down to get a a piece of corn on the ground. Well, the bird's left brain is focused on how to pick up the corn. The bird's right right brain is focused on how not to become someone's prey or dinner. Right. So they're paying, (laughs) paying attention the outside. So the brains are working at the same time performing separate functions, right? And so they're both working those separately and together, if that makes any sense. And that's where I got this whole concept around the, the, the right brain thinks in a stream and the left brain thinks in terms of functional tasks or sections, segments. Mm-hmm. Because A, B, and C to get D. Whereas the right brain is saying, how can this D thing work in the real world and create something? Or what's its purpose? I get fascinated with those kinds of brain things. Yeah, no, it is fa- it's very fascinating. And mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to hear about the project that you did with the University of Washington. Oh, that's right. Again, it, go- it kind of goes back to this whole thing when I was, was really in this space where I was almost... Well, I get into advocacy positions really fast, and so I don't, I uh, just, uh, I'll listen to what people say in terms of reasons for this or that, but if my right brain says you're down in the detail of the book you read or the rules or the policies or procedures someone developed, and you're not thinking big picture, then I totally go, go, advocacy, badass advocacy, quite frankly. Right. I was working with Chihuly Glass Museum, trying to tell them that they can create, they have permanent fixtures that are permanent installations, and then they have ones that rotate or or vary, that they could actually create interesting ways to establish ways for people to 
the blinder low vision to get the idea of the installation if they created a mini one or a flat relief one or if they had the audio description thing where I could you could go in with the device and aim it at something and it gave you uh, the description but in the detail of a professional, not your friend walking through with you saying, it looks like a tree. No, <laughs> I try to get them and work through with them to create ways to create accessibility for people of blind or low vision in terms of that artwork that's throughout the his museum, Dr. Como. And then as I was doing that, I'm going, you know what, there's all this art and stuff that people are doing. And I just remember being in an art museum and have, like, as I started out earlier, having someone basically describe this painting. And I have to keep asking questions. Well, what is it? Is it, are they... They're like uh, shapes, uh, kind of geometric shapes. I'm going, well, are they round? Are they square? Are they mm -hmm. lines? Are they boxes? Are they, mm -hmm. oh, there's, 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 there's some square ones and there's some round ones. And are, are they on top of each other? Are they touch each other? Are they all separate? You know, I just happy to ask so many questions to even get the basic uh, of what this piece of artwork was that it frustrated the hell out of me. And so I decided that there needs to be an art form, and I uh, named it Touching Art, and that the, it had to be both tactile and visual, and that its goal, and so it's worked with the, art, the, uh, the director of the master's program at University of Washington. Again, this is working with DSP. I said, let's go together and let's create uh, an art competition for your graduate students uh, to create a wall mount piece of art that's tactile first and visual second. And then let's do a showing uh, to, for uh, the public and others so they can experience it. And then uh, we as an agency will buy the top four pieces. So we'll put together an art, art jury from the Arts Commission from the state of Washington and other artists and they'll go through and judge all of these pieces and come up with the top four. And so he was totally on board. And so, so we uh, did the logistics. And then um, what I did was I went in and conducted a two-hour workshop for all of the folks that were going to submit a piece uh, for the exhibition and for the competition. And so it forced me to talk to visual artists and to try to get them to understand how to take their visual art and make it tactile without being stereotypical, mm -hmm. right? So uh, I had kept having conversations like, you're going to want to make a face, and that uh, person that's buying will feel it like a nose, and there's an eye, and there's a, there's a, the lips are right here, and there are ears, because you're going to think, I need to create something for blind people, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not what you need to do. I'm asking you to create a tactile art piece that's tactile first and visual second. And so then I basically talked to them and said, how do you, if you're, if you're going to create a piece of work, you know, because not, they're not painter at all. I mean, they're sculpture and, sure. and all kinds of art. But so if you're going to create a piece of work, um, how do, how does a visual person experience your work, right? So I try to challenge them to think about how people check, do their work, look at their work. And so uh, I got them to think about the fact that usually if someone's visually looking at a piece of artwork, that something catches their eye. 
there's something interesting. If it's not, they usually go to the next piece. <laughs> right. Right. They can't, that's not interesting or that's interesting, and they move to the next piece. But if someone gets engaged, there's something about it that catches their interest. And then from that point of interest, they start looking at it closer and in more detail. They start getting inside of it a little bit more and trying to understand it. Maybe if there's something that uh, is challenging, challenging them or trying to appreciate uh, the message or how it's making them feel or something. But they have to get hooked, pulled in, and then they have to evaluate or get, or get emotionally connected. Mm-hmm. So, so it's the same way it will work with a low vision or blind person who's touching a piece of artwork that has been designed with the concept of tactile being a hook. That there's something that someone will feel that will be interesting. They will start exploring it more to find out what it is or what's it making them feel or what is the design or what is it. It could be a texture. It could be a shape. It could be uh, it could be all anything, but something has to hook it. They have to get caught with something tactile, and then they tactically explore it to find out what they need. If it's something they're relating to emotionally, or if it's something they're relating to in terms of trying to discover, it seems interesting, but they can't really start visualizing it yet. So they have to keep exploring because. People who are touching are still visualizing. So you're doing the same thing you would do as a visual viewer. You're bringing them into the piece. You're making them explore. And they're trying to discover something about what they're feeling or expressing with this piece of work. You're talking through it that way. They, As artists, it dawned on them how to start creating. So we had 20 entries. We had, I'll put them all up there, all these, we had the jury, first of all, go through and do all the, the jury thing when they're all still uh, in the art school part. And uh, then they came up with four, but we weren't going to announce it until the end of the show. And so we, they were all hung, because they all well, had to be wall-mount art pieces in the gallery. And then we had a media opening and a, and a community opening and that sort of thing. And then we had the art show there for five days, and they extended it for another uh, 15 days because there were actually lots of public coming through because we, we media promoted it, right? Yeah, it's, a lot of interest. Right. So, right, so then what I did too, again, with working with DSB, is I bought a box of sleep shades so that when the public came to view the, the, the art show, they had to view it tactfully first and visually second. So they all agreed, as we, that's my store, and they all would agree to wear a sleep shade through the gallery. Except if they needed uh, uh, someone to guide them through, they would, mm-hmm. there were people there to do. They had to experience the art tactfully first and then come back around and do it uh, visually. And it was so interesting to watch folks because everybody's been trained not to touch the art. Right. So obstacles breaking, they were so uncomfortable touching the art, that, that was the first thing we had to break, and, so, and that their impressions tactily and then the impressions visually were absolutely, completely, sometimes by opposite, completely opposite, or, or at two different places, and stuff, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, some pieces that really kind of were obvious, and so that wasn't so much. So the more abstract pieces, people really tactily were 
just confused. They couldn't really pick it up. They couldn't get it. So, uh, what was interesting is the work that was, that was, uh, the quality work that was done, uh, was fascinating in terms of creativity again, because artists get out of the box. So one was uh, this uh, large tackle piece that was probably three feet in height and maybe four feet in width. And it was made out of fabric and it had all kinds of, of, of tufting kind of things and it had uh, little uh, tufts of of like little balls of something sort of all clustered together and stuff. And then there were like, it's like string. It was very sensual because it was sort of the thing you had to be really just, it's very fabric and it's just kind of, you had to sort of slow it like a stream so you could almost go the whole length of it mm-hmm. on one. And it had these little clusters of things that were just, again, made out of fabric or whatever. So, and so it was really, really fascinating, but it was completely abstract. And we got that one, by the way. And when I talked to the artist, they said, okay, so what, what was your inspiration? Because this was really quite interesting. And he actually, what he did was he emulated the spores underneath the sword fern. Oh, wow. Exactly. Exactly. So it was this awesome. And so those little clusters were like the spores. And then all the curviness of the fabric and toughness up were like the, the shaping of the veins of a sword fern. Fascinating. That's incredible. I'm still like processing that in my head right now because I know about those ferns and the spores, and that's the wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you were to like magnify it about 300 times right. and create a five, three foot by five, or three foot by five foot wall mount, and then tough it, make it soft and fabric and different densities and and curves and different curves and little, it was just like, say, it was a, it was a very creative piece. And again, little central because of fabric and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, the wall. and then another person did a wall mount piece that was about probably three feet wide and probably at least five feet long. And he had taken beeswax and created all these sort of little creators. And then he took computer fans and dispersed them inside of there here and there, just in different places. So these little buzzing computer fans. Mm-hmm. That, and he created um, a sensor so that when a person came close to the piece, the fans would start going. <laughs> wow. So, and, uh, uh, and the name of the piece was Beehive. And so as you're tactily feeling the piece, every time you hit one of those computer fans, it would go, (laughs) (laughs) it was fascinating. So again, it was extremely creative uh, in terms of a concept and the tactile pieces. So again, this whole piece is relied upon visual and tactile. So this thing is like a golden yellow, so it's quite attractive on the wall uh, with veins and stuff. And so the visual part still worked. Uh, they, by the way, the spores and things, stuff, those were done in, in high-level violets and purples and greens and stuff. Uh-huh. So it was really bright. Yeah. And, and so 
Uh, and so every time you again run your hands across there and come by one of those fans, you would just get this little and of course it doesn't hurt, it just makes a noise. Again, but but he also it. incorporated the audio as well as the tactile and the vibrating. Yeah. It more of a sensory thing because you have to touch it for it to sort of respond, right? Right. So, so that for, is it like we touch itself? So uh, it was, again, it made a humming noise like a beehive might do. Uh-huh. And then to touch the fan, you basically got the bee. <laughs> <laughs> Which fast is just like I say, very creative. I'm trying to think if there are any others that were outstanding for me. Um, or some that were a little bit rough, if you got too tactile, so you might cut your finger off. Mm -hmm. So both were, they, they got the idea of creating a scene tactily, but they didn't think about how to touch it. Yeah. And then one person did actually go toward face silhouettes, but there were like eight of them, and they were all in different positions. So as you went through it and stuff, it's like it kept changing facial directions or expressions or whatever. So it actually was interesting. Mm -hmm. And there were small masks, like this, like like you do a Mardi Gras mask. Or sure. There would be they all were the, had the same face but in different contortions. So that actually was interesting because then you all know, one would turn sideways and one would be looking down and, and that, so you sort of got all the different sort of things. So it was interesting actually. And again, very tactile. Uh, and visually, it was very interesting to see, too. And I can't think of many of the other ones. But the whole idea here was, again, it actually opened up a bunch of artists to the concept of touching art. Mm -hmm. which, And then we had to basically fight their instinct to go touching art for blind people. So I kept saying, no, it's an art form for people. And it's not so that it has two ways to to insert yourself into the experience, and one is touching and one is watching, looking, or visual. So the whole idea was for people to think about art differently and that you could create inclusively to for all audiences. It does not have to be created just for visual audiences. Well, and I like the fact that you, you emphasized that the visual was secondary because I think that that would be a huge, that's what people would normally go towards first is visual, you know, and I love that you oh, yeah. kind of like created that out of the box experience, that that had to be the secondary feature. Right, and the, the key here just to stay in their zone was tactile was the first piece but it couldn't be just this ugly piece of tactile. It had to be sure. visual. Yeah. It had to be a piece of art that if someone looked at it, they would see it as a piece of art. Mm -hmm. Because right. just so, like if, I, we, if we were to touch something that did not feel good, it would be ugly to us, you know? Uh, and actually, there was one person that actually did create stuff that was creepy, uh -huh. but it brought you into it because of the creepiness. Yeah, and, and absolutely, a, yeah. Yeah, I think it was well received. That, uh, the show played longer than it, they were anticipating. A lot of people uh, experienced art completely differently than they had before, and they didn't walk in there going. They didn't. It almost it almost transitioned the concept of blind awareness, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. It was not a blinder experience. Right. And don't get me started. Uh oh, <laughs> anyway, I might get you started. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that. 
<laughs> it was actually people experiencing art and they went in there with the curiosity of someone who wants to experience art. Yeah. That's what was awesome about it. Yeah. So, okay, so I'm going to transition you now to advocacy because you mentioned, you know, that you get sucked in a lot. But, I, I mean, I want you to talk about, you know, number one, your happy warrior uh, name for yourself, yeah. how you came up with that. And then, uh, you know, talk about whatever you want. But I would love to hear maybe your top you know, three things that you sh you think that people should be doing for themselves and organizations should be doing. Uh, not just blindness, but any disability organization uh, should be doing for themselves and individuals. Okay. What's interesting is, again, uh, I'm, I'm going straight to the uh, African thing, or if it's, I don't know if it's Africa or not, but uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a, with a group, right? Uh-huh. That's that. It's, uh, I like going fast, and I like going far. It's that when it comes to individual issues, and I, I know when, if I run into something, a challenge of day-to-day -day living, and if it impacts me directly, and uh, it needs to be resolved, I want to go fast. I want it to go fast. I don't, I'm not interested in bringing in, uh, reinforcement. So I have a tendency and I've learned through the years strategies on how to get action from people. And part of it is actually having, and again, you, I've mentioned theater before, but is actually having the persona that carries the confidence of the request. That makes any sense. Yes. So when it's something impacting me directly, then I am going to take care of it. I'm not going to wait around. I'm not going to go ask somebody. I'm not going to invite people to join me in, in taking this on. And so I approach things from two directions. One, if it impacts me, it's probably going to impact others. So there's going to be the second part of the advocacy. First part of the advocacy is solve my problem. I'm not going to wait. I'm going to do it, and we're going to get it solved. But in the process of solving my problem, I'm going to point out to the or groups or whatever it is that are creating unnecessary barriers for people that are blind or low vision. I'm going to make sure they know that I represent others, that I'm not the only person who might be having this issue, and that you probably need to consider whether you are actually in violation of all kinds of uh, human rights issues and or whether you really uh, want to delete a $425 billion consumer market from your businesses. If that's what you really want to do, you're doing a great job of it. So if you, that's what you want to do. So I try to solve my problem, and then I actually then try to understand the organization enough to actually hit them with the realization that I am only one person, but there are others like me who may be encountering the same issue, and I'll work with you, and others may just go straight to their lawyers. Mm -hmm. So I set out a case of saying, you need to fix this, and fix it for me. But not only just for me, you need to actually institutionally fix it for any consumer who might be blind or low vision. And so, for example, uh, when I was at, uh, broke my leg and I was in the hospital, right? Mm -hmm. So I was there for eight days. This is with uh, a Kaiser person, uh, and I was in the Swedish hospital. I mean, there was a broken leg, and then 
uh, uh, I was there like five days, and they started saying, okay, we need to go to rehab. So they started calling around their circuit for a rehab facility. Uh, I can go do that. And, and it, so I kept saying, okay, you're going out, you're leaving tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. And so I get all ready to go, et cetera, et cetera. And then they come back and say, oh, no, it didn't, didn't work through. Stuff. And they, we thought we had a bed, but we don't, blah, blah, blah. And I kept going on and on for like three days. And so finally, I stopped and asked the person who was uh, trying to arrange this. I said, well, what is going on? This doesn't feel right. Said, well, I keep talking, keep talking to them, and uh, they keep saying that they don't take blind people. I said, what? Oh. <laughs> you what? And again, I made her an ally saying, well, that's, that's very strange. What, tell me more about that. And so she, she told me more about it and what she was running to. And in essence, what she was saying was that she'd be calling, they have a bed, someone's got a broken leg, they need to go for rehab. Oh, and by the way, they're blind. And as soon as they said that, they would say, oh, we don't do blind rehab. And so I'm, I'm saying, well, are you telling them that I'm not going there for blind rehab? I'm going there for a broken leg? Are you making the distinction here? And so she couldn't because she didn't even know what I was talking about. <laughs> so... Uh, so I had her call uh, one of the facilities uh, and put her on speakerphone while I was there so I could share that conversation, which she did. And the person basically said, we don't have, we, they were looking for a private room since I'm blind. And so uh, they they had a couple of uh, dual occupancy rooms, but they uh, couldn't do that until, until they have a private room. And so she asked, I paused her to ask why, and she could. And the person on the line said, well, you know, if they're in a, in a uh, room with someone else, I mean, they, they might get up and, like, run into something or, or trip over something or something. Oh, my word. Oh, yes? <laughs> okay, so that's the information. So I, I, so I said, you know, thank you for thinking. Uh, I need some names of people. First of all, who's that, who is it at uh, Swedish Hospital who does these phone calls to credit create these rehab connectors here and stuff because I know that they're they're contracted with you in some way so there's a contractual agreement here but you're under your contract and your values and mission and stuff these folks have to operate so who does that work she gave the name of that person I had my laptop there I went online and got as high up the chain of Kaiser as I could get in Swedish and basically started a, a conversation with the uh person in charge of medical operations or nursing. And I basically said, first of all, I went to your website, read your mission statement, et cetera, et cetera. And it says, one, that you're inclusive and that you don't discriminate and blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, does that apply to your vendors as well? Oh, yeah, of course it does. Well, uh, it's not applying to the vendors that people are trying to get me into for rehab because then I went through my story. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, I don't believe it. No, I'm sure. And so uh, I said, that's fine. If you don't believe it, then get me a bed. Right. <laughs> In a rehab. Mm-hmm. Just get me a bed and we'll be good. So this woman got off the phone, said, I'll call you back. She called me at 5.30 that same day and said, I see what you mean. Thank you. Now let's fix it. And not only fix it, but let's fix it for everybody else too. So what I'm going to do is once I'm rehabbed, I'm going to recontact you and we're going to set up some training for your staff around blind awareness and also equity and inclusion. And we're going to set that up 
and uh, you're going to insist that they attend, and we're going to make you align with your mission statement and your vision. How does that sound? <laughs> and so, right? And so, so I'm solving my problem, but I'm looking for the opportunity to solve it for others if I think it's something that's big enough that impacts more people. Now, on the second one, as a happy warrior, that's when I would bring in someone like the uh, Washington Council or NFB or others mm -hmm. so that they're in but my experience has been it takes too long for them to take action and organize around that action because they want to make sure that they're not taking risks, they're not uh, they're hearing the right story, that they need to verify this, that, and the other. So I understand the logic of their slowness, but sometimes the logic of their slowness misses the opportunity where the fire is hot and yeah. they need to put it out. That that boat's already sailed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do believe that to go far, you need to bring others into it. But the others that are brought into it actually need to move uh, at a more at a at a faster pace uh, to actually get into it while it's hot. Mm -hmm. Because once time passes, the power of the moment passes as well. And stuff. So, uh, so the advocacy piece is, is that I'm constantly changing systems on my own. I'm doing it fast, but I'm not doing it for the entire group as best as I can. So, so part of my frustration is that a lot of times people are waiting for other people to solve their problem. And by them doing that, the problem isn't going to be solved because the people they're waiting for are going to take a very slow process to go there, right? However, as a person, you can engage others without going through, and there were, like the, the thing I was talking about when someone, someone wrote in about uh, having an issue with uh, the grocery stores taking away all the checkers, and they're yes. all gonna be all automatic checkers. They were so busy looking for someone else to fix it that they didn't realize they could fix it. Mm -hmm. So I basically said, fix it. Go in there, talk to your people, your chapter, whatever. You don't have to do it on behalf of WCB. Right. Do it on behalf of blind friends and neighbors. Exactly. Get them together, go in there, and there go. say, great. Do it. Get <laughs> in line, have your groceries, and jam up every one of them. Yep. The store actually comes to a stop. And you can certainly, certainly turn to someone and say, all I'm trying to do is check out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I all the stuff. And yeah. then, same time, have one of your closest allies, husband, friend, uh, brother, sister, of uh, someone that you've jammed up those machines or jammed up those stations with, videotaping the entire experience. Yes. And you'll be amazed at how quickly someone will want to resolve that. Yes. Again, to me, that's the happy warrior at work right there. <laughs> yes, and I think that's a really, really valid point, you know, that, that you really do need to take things into your own hands a lot of times. I know I have had to do that many times, and, and it is right. much quicker and much more effective a lot of the time rather than waiting for the red tape of whatever system it is, you know. You know, do it yourself. Do it.
And then right. once you've gone through that process, say, hey, guess what I just fixed? Guess where you all can go pay your bill now because of the work that one person did or, you know, um, but. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And the trick is, though, Heather, is that there are so many systems that see one person, see one person's problem and either create a one person solution or create resistance to the resolution. Right. Right. That they're not interested because they have to do something different. I remember taking on my Safeway store and they kept they came up with uh, this template that went over the top of their uh, point of sale uh, touchable screen. And, so, and then they would continue to lose it every time I walked to the store. They have to go spend five minutes looking for this one template that they solve for this one problem. Rather than just making it a normal right? uh, run-of-the-mill thing for anybody that needs it any time. Right. And well, and again, as I'm sitting there saying, you know, you can get one at the touchscreen and have to keep that at the same time. You know mm -hmm. that, right? That sometimes the invigoration of doing something, get comfortable with making good trouble. That, but getting in good trouble is the way to actually create the passion of advocacy. A, because I've seen some people, basic, basically their advocacy is getting pissed and making a scene. Mm -hmm. That's not advocacy. Mm -mm. That's, That's just making a scene. It's making a scene and they it want you to go away. Mm -hmm. And uh, by actually uh, doing something creative, making it fun, because how much fun would it be to go in and basically shut down a store for about 15 minutes because <laughs> no <laughs> Yes. And so, got all the store employees trying to help each one of these people individually and stuff. Uh, and you got someone videotaping this whole interaction. People aren't being nasty. They're not, uh, you know, saying, all I want to do is check out. And apparently you made it very hard for me to do that. So probably you should fix this maybe. Mm -hmm. But if you jammed up checkout station, that statement cannot be overlooked. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and, and social, social media now, too. I mean, that video goes viral. Right. People are looking at it nationwide all of a sudden. Right, okay. and, and they're aware of that, too, but, and public relations all over the place. So I went to their website and actually looked, up, looked for their mission statement and their mission statement. And their mission statement said they want to be the store of choice for all customers. Okay, here's your, here's your hook. This is what you need to use. All you're doing is saying, we want you to be that too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yes. Going along with their Except all it takes is, again, the happy part of it is there are fun ways to actually make the point and get what you need and create change. Yes. And you don't have to get an organizational buy-in to actually organize your group of friends. So that's the happy warrior piece. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I think that the last thing I always ask people in these interviews is if there would be one, one message that you would want to leave people with, what would it be? I always hesitate here because I oftentimes become honest and then therefore then suffer the consequences of people not understanding what honesty sounds like. Mm -hmm. Accepting the authenticity of your own position being true to yourself that old classic saying be true to yourself first right and being true to yourself first means don't pretend like blindness isn't a pain in the butt mm -hmm. don't pretend it is because it is and don't pretend 
that you're a victim of it because you're not. And don't pretend that others are obligated to help you out of your situation because they're not. And don't pretend that it's okay to just be on your own, do it your way, live with whatever the consequences are, and be 100% independent, even if you're 50% inadequate. So, um, so the, the honest reality of the authenticity. So it's way easier for you to actually be interdependent, which should be the goal, because that's where everybody else is. I don't think blind people should think they should be different. So it's not a choice. It's not a binary choice between dependence or independence. It's actually a choice of interdependence, which means you actually are part of a community of sighted, non-sighted, disabled, non-disabled, uh, people of multiple colors, multiple cultures, multiple faiths, multiple political standpoints, that, that you're part of the tapestry. You aren't the star and nor are you the consequential thread. Mm -hmm. You're essential to the tapestry. Ask for what you need. Don't ask for things you can do yourself. Include people in your life because they like you as a person. Don't assume that you're going to always be the victim of your circumstance. Understand that people are, are generally kind-hearted even when they're sloppy about it, that people will never understand your situation if they don't have lived experience with it and to not expect that. And don't make it the thing that defines you. So the idea that the characteristic of blindness is not the definer of who you are as a person. It's a characteristic like the color of your hair, yes. your height, and the color of your eyes. It's not, blindness should not be the thing that leads your life. It should be just part of it like everything else, part of the tapestry of it. I love that. So, I love that. And, and and let's just hope that the tapestry becomes more and more tactile as we go along. It's not what we It would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> it would, they could, yeah, you could use different kinds of threads that have different textures. <laughs> but the but, the, but the, what's nice about a tapestry, for either blindsided or other, is, uh -huh. that, is that a tapestry is a, a blend, and it doesn't yes. really matter what's there. Mm -hmm. It really isn't important what the tapestry shows. The tapestry is just a blend of all kinds of threads that would normally not go together. Yes. And it is the big picture. You know, because if you look thing. at little parts Absolutely. of the tapestry, it means nothing. You have to have to understand the whole thing. So I, I think that's a beautiful, um, uh, I can't even think of the words right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Some interviewer I am today. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I just really appreciate you spending time with me to... Um, to talk, and I think this was a wonderful interview. So thank you, Mark. Awesome. Oh, no, thank you, Heather, for uh, doing it. This podcast was made in association with Washington Council of the Blinds Newsline Publication. 
You can contact us at the WCBnewsline at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Credit for this production goes to podcast producer Zach Hertz, editors Heather Mears and Reginald George, and we'd like to extend a thank you to Kevin McLeod at Incomputech.com for his use of the song Life of Riley. Thank you so much for listening and tune in for our next episode or check out previous episodes.